All right, well, please have a seat. I am so excited to introduce our preacher for this evening. You know, really, the, the reason that we are here tonight is the vision that he had when he started Compass Bible Church. From the first time I met Pastor Mike Fabares, he was talking to me about planting churches. And even the, the reason we're in this room is I walked in here one day with Pastor Mike and I was like, I don't know, Pastor Mike, what do you think? Should we get this place? And he just looked at me and he was like, yeah, man, we got to have it. <laughs> and here we are, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. So you know, we, we just love Pastor Mike and his vision to plant this church. He has probably been the most supportive person about planting this church out of anyone that I've talked to. And uh, he has taught me a lot about preaching, about what it means to be a pastor. So if you've never gotten to hear Pastor Mike before, I'm so excited. In fact, if you want to take, for those of you guys at Compass Huntington Beach, if you want to take some of Pastor Mike's uh, preaching home with you, he wrote a book that just came out this last year, um, and I would really recommend it to you, Lifelines for Tough Times. It's a great book um, for yourself or anybody you know who's going through a trial or a difficult situation in life, there is great comfort to be found in the Lord. This book will help you find it. And so I would strongly recommend it to everybody. We have it in the bookstore right here. But I'm hoping that we can give a warm Compass Bible Church Huntington Beach welcome to Pastor Mike Fabares. Let's bring him on up here. All right. Bobby says that like it's a surprise. He walked me through the door and he says, what do you think, Pastor Mike? And I said, well, we got to have that. He laughed and said, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> you knew exactly what I was going to say when I saw this building. Because this, be this beat's sitting out in the high school quad or whatever that was, right? I know it'll be nostalgic. You'll look back. Do you remember when we were at the high school? It was so great. But come on. When the cheerleaders want a special event, you get kicked out. You have to go to the theater, you know, when the marching band has to do something or the ROTC. I mean, this is, this is where you need to be. And we need to see this church reach this community for Christ. And we need to buy more chairs. And we need to have multiple services. And you need to start planning your own churches and sending guys out and walking into rooms and telling those guys, hey, we need to have this building. That's what this is all about because we don't have much time left. If you think about it, right? Even if Christ doesn't come back in our generation, time is running out. And I'll tell you, there's no better investment of your life than to invest your life in church planting, right? You think about it. Bobby's always talking about evangelism. There's no better method of evangelism than seeing churches get planted, grow, and get healthy. And that's not easy. As a matter of fact, if you are part of the HB, the, the, the CBC, the Compass HB, this has been a... It's been a real challenging new year for you, right? I mean, you've been busy. I've seen the pictures. You're up on scaffolding, on ladders. There's been a lot of work from the time that Bobby and I first came through these doors, walked these hallways, and a lot of it was a mess. You've done a lot of work. And I know it's the kind of work many of you have just joyfully done, but it is a lot of work. It's like, it's like having a child, right? All of us enjoy, I suppose, I mean, unless you have the terrible children, but I mean, we all enjoy parenting. It's a great joy and a blessing, but you got to admit, it's a lot of work. I mean, even if you had like a Visa card with a million dollars on it and you didn't have to pay for anything, it is still a lot of work. 
It reminds me of a game show. Our family kind of got into game shows lately. <laughs> um, I mean, I shouldn't say that. We don't watch much TV, but we've been watching a few game shows. And on one of the game shows, and I don't even think you, you were there. I saw it at the gym or something. And they gave away on this game show a free backpacking trip. And I thought about what a horrible <laughs> prize that is. I mean, it was in some exotic place, Switzerland or Chile or somewhere. I'm sure for a backpacker that was a great thing, but... You know, my vacations, I always ask, you know, how, how many ice machines do they have? You know, is there room service? I, I don't like backpacking. And I don't say that because I've never tried it. A lot of people say, well, you've got to try it. I've tried it. Well, you've got to try it with people who know what they're doing. I've tried it with people that know what they're doing. It's awful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've been out. One, one of the worst and difficult experiences I had was backpacking in the high Sierras for a week. And, uh, and I, I did it actually twice. I don't know why I did it twice, but I did it twice. And, I mean, you had nothing. The, the water was so freezing cold, you couldn't really get in it and, you know, clean yourself. It was just a stinky, you know, hairy, gross experience for a week. And so when I saw this guy who won a free backpacking trip, I just thought, you know, I don't care how free it is. Uh, that's going to that's gonna cost you. And, and I, I know that there are a lot of things in life that people enjoy backpacking and they say, oh, great, happy, I got a free trip. Or, you know, parenting or planning churches. There's a lot of things that we can celebrate and enjoy, whether it's painful or not. But most things, if you really add up in the hurt column, most things are costly. Planning this church is costly. It's going to cost you time and effort and sweat and tears and all kinds of things you'll invest in that. Raising children, right? Even some things people enjoy, there's a lot of expenses involved. Now, the cornerstone of Christian theology is that if you want to get right with God, it's free, right? It's all free, right? It's not by works. You can't earn it. I mean, the cornerstone of Christian theology is to be saved. It is absolutely free. The cult groups say, no, it's not free. You got to do this or have enough good works to, you know, balance out the bad works. There's a lot of bad theology, but you Christians, you sit here, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you say, no, I know it's free. But, of course, some people have taken the simplistic summary of the gospel that's free and have turned that into a real false idea about what Christianity is. Because like a lot of things that may be free, you may win a free backpacking trip, it's going to cost you a lot. As a matter of fact, it's going to cost you far more than you can even envision. Thankfully, God doesn't play the tape of our Christian life to us. Right, the day that we're contemplating whether we want to become a Christian or not. He uses superlative terms, and he says things that are big and sweeping, but the reality is to walk with Christ for five years, to walk with Christ for 15 years, to walk with Christ for 25 years, those are the people with a lot of scars. They have a lot of pain. They look back on a lot of trials and difficulties. Now, they say great things like, you know, through many trials, toils, and snares, we have already come, and they can begin to look at the great advantages of being a Christian, but the costs are something we need to count. Bobby's been preaching in Matthew 16, and he assigned me the text tonight, verses 24 through 28. And if you haven't already opened your Bibles, that'd be a good text to camp in with me tonight, just to remind ourselves that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he says, yeah, just like he says elsewhere in the Bible, it's all about my work. He's going to say on the cross to tell us die, paid in full, it is finished. But when it comes to what it's going to cost you, really going to cost you everything. This is an amazing statement. Verse 24, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples this, quote, if anyone would come after me. Now, there's some statements in the Bible that don't apply to you. I mean, there's some stories you can see and say, well, that's not me. I'm not that guy. This is you and this is me. This is the eternal, 
all-inclusive statement of Christians for all time in the church age. Hey, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, let him, three things, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it's going to cost you. The word cross for us, very familiar to us, they're gilded and golden. They got, you know, wood crosses at some place, crosses on pulpits, crosses on steeples. But in that day, cross didn't mean anything like that. You would never, you would never gild one with gold or have one in silver or, you know, tattoo one on your arm. I mean, crosses were not anything to speak of anything great, virtuous, profound, meaningful, theological. I mean, the cross was the worst possible way that you could imagine dying. And in this text, you can imagine, before we had any good and grace attached to the cross, he says, you guys are going to follow me? Deny yourself at the center of it. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, if you want to avoid all that, because cross is going to cost you everything, denying yourself is obviously putting aside what you want. If you want to save your life, if you want to avoid all that, here's the problem. You're going to wake up one day and realize, I missed it. You're going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You can count the cost of Christianity and say, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. It's too hard. The preacher comes and tells me it's going to cost you everything. And someone who's followed Christ for 20 years, there's a lot of pain and toils and trials and snares. I mean, why would I want to do that? Well, you can avoid it all. You can try and, you know, find your way around all that. But the Bible says here, you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to lose it, you'll find it. Because if you even had an opportunity to skip the cross and self-denial and following someone else instead of your own passions and your own desires, the Bible says here, uh, if you had the whole world at your, at your footstep uh, and, you, and you, you lost your soul, what would that profit you? What would the profit a man if he gains his, the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here's this eternal, you know, ongoing, immortal part of us that goes beyond this life. If we lose that, that wouldn't be worth any 30, 40, 50, 70 years of comfort or convenience. You know, one day it's going to be over. It'll be here before you know it. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels, verse 27 says, and in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what he's done. And the most immediate context is what you do with this equation. You want to save your life? Got to lose it. You want to lose your life? You're willing to do that for me? You're going to find it. Then he says something that'll set up what Bobby's going to teach tomorrow night. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that's the preview there in chapter 17. Bobby will talk to us about last night when Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Well, let's deal with this verse 24 for just a few minutes. And since Bree got us started with testimony time, uh, let me tell you a little bit about my own life when it comes to this verse. I, like Bree, grew up, you know, in a nice Christian home, went to church as a kid. I mean, I'd heard the stories. I'd learned the verses. I went to my version of Iwana, and I'd done all the things that a good church kid should do. But when it came to my own life, I didn't know anything about self-denial taking up a cross and following Christ. Sure, like Bree, I wanted to avoid the bad reputation of being a bad kid. I wanted to be a good kid. But when it came to self-denial, that really wasn't part of the equation. Till God put his finger on my chest, so to speak. And when, just like Bree, I got exposed to reading the Bible, and I got in the Word every day, that I started to recognize this is a whole life transaction. I don't know where you're at with Christ. Maybe you think you're a Christian. Most people do, by the way, right? Most people do. 
the stats in our culture right now in America, in the West, is that most people believe in heaven. Let's start with this. Most people believe in God, right, over 90%. Most people believe in heaven, and most people think they're going there. Only 1% of the people that believe in God in heaven believe they're not going there. Now, we can get testimony time where you get the guy who stands up who thinks, you know what, I was a rotten, terrible person, and I knew I was going to hell. Very few people can say that and really mean it, because if you run the tape back and ask them, don't you think if you die, God's going to cut you some slack because he understands your life? I mean, they're going to say, well, yeah, maybe my testimony's exaggerated. Very few people think right now that they're not going to heaven. I thought I was going to heaven, sure. I believe the right stuff. I know about God. I walked an aisle when I was five years old and got baptized in the church when I could barely see over the water. Matter of fact, I remember walking into the baptismal tank with my old pastor that was going to baptize me, and when I walked down the steps, they thought I'd walk down too many steps because the water was like to here. And I remember looking out at the sea of people, and everybody giggled. Little, you know, midget man is getting baptized today. Yeah, I knew what that was all about. I became the president of my youth group. Think about that. And I'm telling you right now, were I to die as a 16-year-old driver on the 405 freeway, I would have gone straight to hell. Jesus warned of that. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And they'll say all the things they did in the name of Christ. And they'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. You want to save your life on that day? We're getting the instructions right here. It is self-denial, cross-bearing, and following. When I read the Bible, I was hit with this. If you are going to be right with me, you need to deny yourself. Now, this is how the Ten Commandments started back in Exodus 20. Think about it. Very first thing God said, now think this through. The Pentateuch, which is the, the shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses pinned those when he was coming out of Egypt, and he was leading the people, and as a prophet, he wrote those things down. Before he wrote down Genesis through Deuteronomy, they got the first writing from God, and it wasn't in Genesis. It was Exodus chapter 20, right? In time, you want to talk chronologically, the first thing God wrote for his people to read were the Ten Commandments. And what was the first thing he said to his people? No other gods. No other gods before me. I'm going to be number one. And that's only right. And if that sounds like God is egotistical, just remember, when God is God, he should be recognized as God. If there is a center of the universe and there is someone we're all supposed to live for because that makes everything right with the universe, at least in my life, if I let God be God, that's the right thing, right? If that's the truth, then be the very most kind and loving thing you could tell me to do. Right? If dirt is not for eating, right? but good food sitting on a plate is for eating, the best thing that you could tell me is eat the food. That's what it's there for. Your body's made for that food. The food's made for your body. Eat it. That would be good instead of chewing on a, on a pole or eating a, you know, the, the, the foam out of a chair. God says, I'm God, and you just need to make sure that I'm God. Put me first. No other gods before me. That was summed up in the Old Testament theology this way, right? When that idea of what it meant to be right with God was the affections of your heart, you got to love me. Love me. Jesus summarized it this way when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Everything else is second. Self-denial, when I finally started reading the Bible, 
Oh, I'd quoted it. I'd memorized it by rote. You know, my leaders never asked me what it meant. They just said, did you get the words right? How many mistakes did you make? But when I finally read it and God started to work on my heart and really convinced me, this was about God being God, I looked at my life and said, well, if God is defined by the most important priorities, the most, in priority, most important priority in my life certainly isn't God. I mean, that's good and it's convenient and it fits, but you know, when it doesn't fit because something else I wanted, to, well, then I'm not interested. Two things, and some of you have heard my testimony, but if you haven't, I had two things in my life I love more than anything else. Carlin, <laughs> that was number one, and music. And really, if you ask me as a teenager, I wasn't sure which one I loved more, right? Music, depending on the day or the time of the day. And my girlfriend, Carlin. I was going to say Fabares. It wasn't her name back then. When I read the Bible and I understood this, I don't even know if I had read this verse yet or contemplated this, but I read enough of the Bible to know God's got to be God. I realized all those things have to be second. Everything. And anyone could tell by looking at my life, he loves that girl and he loves that music. He wants to be a musician and he wants to marry that girl. Those, are the, that's, those were the two top things. And I had to say, okay, God. Remember that story if you have read the most dramatic scene in Abraham's life, there's no getting around it. It's when God says to him, take the son, right, your only son, the son whom you love, and go kill him. I mean, this is the most outlandish, crazy thing you could ever expect God to say to Abraham. You promised me this child. You gave me this child. It's the only child I have that's with Sarah, the one you promised I would have the child with, and now you want me to kill the child? Put it on the altar. Put him on the altar and kill him. Of course, God didn't let that happen. There was no value in human sacrifice, but this was a test. The Bible makes that clear. And in that moment of faith, which means I'll let God be God and call the shots in my life, he proved something about the quality and the presence of genuine saving faith. That's what he expects. That may sound crazy, but it's no more crazy than you eat the food, not the dirt, not the rocks. God's got to be God. He's got to call the shots. And we've got to be willing to deny ourselves. I don't know, the notes at this point seem almost irrelevant, but I'm grateful that these things are here. I put it this way on your outline if you're taking notes. I need to be grateful that the costs are clear. I need to know from God what it takes to be right with Him, and I'm grateful that the cost is clear. I've talked about the restaurants. I don't think I've ever even been to any of them that are so ritzy and, and crazy, you know, off the chart expensive that they don't list the prices on the menu. And they, you know the old line, right? If you have to ask, you know, you, you can't afford it. That's probably why, why I don't end up in any of those restaurants, I suppose. But I wouldn't appreciate that at all, right? Tell me what it costs. And Christ says this, here's what's going to cost you. Your affections and desires take second place to me. That's it. Now, you said Carlin, and you put her down on the priority totem pole. Then what, what's the deal? Why is she Carlin Fabares and not Carlin Smith? It wasn't her maiden name, but she doesn't like to talk about her maiden name. You can ask her later. <laughs> well, because sometimes, like Abraham, he walked down Mount Moriah with Isaac next to him, didn't he? Doesn't mean that God always takes those things away, but something was very clear in Abraham's heart when he walked down the mountain. Isaac certainly wasn't his God, right? Well, why is it that you didn't start the service 
as the worship leader, why are you preaching? Great question, right? Because God took that desire and that passion, dare I say, worship for music, and said, we're going to get rid of that one. He told me, if you will, poetically, to drive the knife into both of those and a whole host of other things. And some of them he let me carry through with that, and I never went back to it, haven't performed on a stage since. I know some people always try to egg me on, just do it this Christmas, play the... No, not interested in playing publicly. I don't do it anymore. That was one that God allowed to be swept right off the altar of my life, and I haven't seen it again, not certainly in those terms. If there's anything in your heart that rivals that ultimate priority, that's what needs to be understood in this passage when Jesus says to everyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. That cross-bearing, as I said, was a picture of torture. It was a picture of pain. It was a picture of death. And as Bobby said last night, if you were here last night, that cross was not designed, like he said, the guillotine or the firing spot. It wasn't just designed to kill you. It was designed to torture you and then kill you. This is the ultimate symbol of pain. And here's the thing about Christianity. You may not be a martyr and be hung on a cross to suffer for a couple of days before you suffocate. But there'll be lots of things in your life that will hurt if you follow him. And the Bible says if you're going to come after him, be ready for that proverbial cross-bearing. And in that, that day, I mean, almost all of the apostles were somehow martyred, and some of them were killed on a cross. But it's important for us to say, I'm ready. To follow you, I'm ready. I will count the cost and consider the cost that following you may be difficult. I had no problem being on a stage when I was in high school, traveling around, doing what I did with music, as long as I had the instrument in my hands. I didn't, I didn't mind that. But if you said to me in high school, I want you to get up at the front of the class and speak to people with just your mouth, no interest in that. Matter of fact, like most people, it is the number one fear that people have, public speaking. I mean, I, I certainly would have agreed with that. Sometimes I still agree with that. It's a scary thing to do. And if you had told me in high school, hey, you know what? You're going to speak for a living in front of people, on stages, with bright lights in your face and microphones strapped to your cheek, which in those days, no one did that. That would have been crazy. Like a pilot, right? You have a microphone strapped to your cheek. I would have said, I want that would, that would be torturous to me. But the thing I said as a teenager when I finally started reading the Bible like Bree, I got to that place of knowing what it meant to put my trust in Christ was this. I'll follow you, and I'll do what you say, no matter how difficult that is. No matter what that is. And like I said, I'm thankful that God didn't show me that in, you know, 2015, I'd be on a stage on a Wednesday night speaking to people a few miles from where I grew up. I, I'm glad he didn't show me that. It would have freaked me out. But you know what, every step of the way I've said to God, which we should all say, and imperfectly, I understand, there's times we stumble, but we get up in the morning, we open our Bibles, we pray to God and say, God, whatever it is you want me to do, no matter how difficult it might be, I'm willing to follow you. And the pain of that is typified, it is summarized in the picture of a cross. I know some things in your life seem just so 
difficult. If I have to be a Christian and give that up, that'll be so painful. If I'm a Christian and you call me to do this, it would be so painful. Well, when I walked down the Mount Moriah with Isaac, in this case, when I realized I was going to be able to uh, keep this relationship with my then girlfriend, now my, my, my now wife, Carlin will tell you, we had those times before we got married just sitting around saying, what will this cost us to follow Christ? And are we willing? Now, I don't recommend this, I suppose, in going to the detail that we did. We're both planners, and so we sat down and thought, okay, and we didn't say it this way, but worst case scenario, right? What would this look like? And we still joke about it. Sometimes we tell our testimony. Occasionally we'll tell our testimony together at some event. And when it comes down to it, I don't know what she pictured exactly, but I could paint, if I were an artist, I could paint the picture of the hut I knew we were going to live in <laughs> with the kinds of gigantic insects and animals that would crawl across our body at night as we tried to sleep under the mosquito nets in some out-of-the-way place like David Livingston or something. That, that's, that's what I envisioned. Now, again, I don't know that it's as helpful to do what we did. We're kind of psychotic in that regard. But when we both pictured that, we had to both sit there and say before God, even if that's what it takes, even if that's where you lead, wherever you lead, we're going to go, even if it's painful, even if it's difficult. Jesus told his disciples, anyone come after me, you've got to deny yourself, your priorities, your gods, your idols. They need to be set behind us, and you need to follow me, you need to love me. And that following may cost you a kind of lifestyle that you may at this point say is torturous. If I have to give up that or go there or do this, but that's all right. I'm willing to let it go. And then follow me, which is a much more, I don't know, palatable way to say it. Sometimes the following will be following Christ in some very difficult places, but following is what we do every day. I can't follow physically Christ. He's not here walking the streets of Orange County, but I can open up my Bible, I can see what the Scripture says, and I can say, I'm supposed to replicate that in my life. And those are little decisions. They're often decisions that don't feel like they're torturous, but they are decisions that aren't my decisions. What has God asked me to do with my money, with my time? with my effort, with my relationships, with my hobbies, with my recreation? What, what does God want? I've got to make those decisions where God becomes such an integral part of my thinking that my priorities and decision-makings are really, it's, it's decided by those things. Follow me. Follow me. I met a lot of people, and it would have been me had you asked me as a 17, 16-year-old, hey, are you going to heaven? And I would say yes. Why? Because I asked Jesus in my heart. I walked an aisle. I got baptized. I'm a part of a church. I'm a good kid. I don't smoke and drink and, you know, all that. I, I, I'm okay. And to me, that mindset was one I encounter all the time when I talk to people about becoming a Christian, and that is I did that. It was something past tense. I got the ticket. I got the insurance policy. I signed up. I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I go to church. And it's all tucked away in my back pocket. Jesus always looks at someone. And when their salvation is in question, he always comes around to asking the question or probing the idea of, are you following me? Are you doing what I'm asking you to do? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Luke 6, 46, and not do what I say? A lot of people claim to be followers of Christ. They just don't follow Christ. What that means to them is, I did something in the past. Well, try, look this up sometime. Try to go through the Gospels and find a time where Jesus is doing evangelism and he goes back historically in their life to ask them a question about something they did in the past. It doesn't happen. He's always saying, what about now? 
hey, rich guy, why don't you just give that all away and follow me? It's always now, are you willing to follow me? If anyone would come after me, you've got to deny himself. Got to be willing to take up the cross, which may be overwhelmingly painful in his own thinking, what I'll have to give up or what I'll have to do. And then you just have to get into that pattern of every day. This is a now kind of relationship. I became a Christian when I was 17. I guess I was going on 18, September, October. I'd just become, I, I was just past my 18th birthday. But if you ask me about my Christianity, or if you want even in the recesses of my heart as I ponder what it means to know God, I, I, looking back is not something I do. I've got to look now, today. Are you living the Christian life today? doesn't mean I'm a Christian on Tuesday and I'm not a Christian on Friday. It simply means I'm looking at the reality of my faith by, am I following Christ? I'm grateful he gave us the costs and that they're clear. But if you're new to all of this, and I must say, some of us think that this kind of teaching is crazy because they never hear it. Because you're not going to hear it on most Christian radio stations or TV, or you're not going to hear it in the popular, you know, Christian tracks that you see around. But this is what the Bible teaches. This is what Jesus said. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. A very present and everyday reality. For whoever would save his life, verse 25 says, is going to lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake would find it. Now, you take that first verse there in verse 25 of our second point, you'd have to ask the question, what does it mean to save one's life? Well, in light of what we just read, deny yourself, bear your cross, follow me, you kind of get an idea of what that is. But the emphasis that Jesus gives us in verse 26 is on what that means in modern day life, no matter if it's first century modern day or 21st century modern day, it's that idea of gaining the world in verse 26. In other words, if your soul is at stake, what really does it profit you? Rhetorical question. If you got everything in this life that you wanted, you got to be the musician, you got the girl, you didn't have to take up your cross, you weren't inconvenienced by your religion, you didn't have to have God as your God, you could call your shots. You don't need God as the ultimate priority, you get to be the planner and director. What would it profit a man if that plan worked out great? You were a superstar. You were rich. You were fantastic. Your life played itself out perfectly. You lived to be 95 years old. And then you forfeited your soul. What profit is that? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is assumed. wouldn't profit you anything. Because when it comes down to the last day of your life, bottom of verse 26, what would a man give in return for his soul? One of the things I never thought I would do, and if you asked me before I was a Christian, do you want to spend time dealing with death and going to hospitals and sitting with people in the, in the, in the mortuary or in the morgue? I, I, like, gross, never. I don't ever want to do that. But being a pastor, you get exposed to a lot of that part of people's lives. I've seen a lot of people die in the 30 or so years of ministry I've been doing. And people die in two very distinct ways. Very interesting. There's a book that Herbert Lockyer wrote called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. If you ever come across that, it's probably a penny on Amazon Marketplace. Pick that up and thumb through it. And take a look at just the way he so... Uh, carefully chronicles the distinction between people dying with faith in Christ and in relationship with Christ and those that don't. It doesn't matter how famous they are. It doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter how accomplished they are. The last words of saints and sinners, when it comes down to it, on that last day, 
I don't care if you were the number one most hailed celebrity in all of our modern era. If you face death with that dreadful fear that I'm going to go into a dark, priceless eternity, you'd go back and trade everything to change that reality. Your life is going to be tested, not at your retirement, not even when you have people recall what kind of person you were. It will be tested for you one minute after you die. That's when your life is tested. Everything about your life will come to the point of being evaluated the moment you die. And that's the point when you want to say, I didn't forfeit my soul. Now again, I don't know where you're at, but you could say, well, you know, this is the scare tactics of church I've never liked. The hellfire and brimstone scaring people into, listen, if it's not real, then I'm with you on that. Why would we ever be, let's just talk about morals and trying to make the world a better place and feeding the poor and we'll just talk about happy things. But if the reality is that all the people that died in Huntington Beach, in L.A. County, in Orange County today went to one of two places in their consciousness and they went to a place where the Bible promises they'll get a body back, an impervious body, a body that's impervious to sickness or decay or, or death and they'll be in one of two places. If that's the reality... Which, by the way, Jesus spoke of that reality all the time in his preaching. Not only that, when he spoke of the two realities of the eternity, he spoke more of hell and the reality of hell than he ever spoke about the glories of heaven. He wanted to tell us, be careful. We may not like hellfire and brimstone teaching, and if you're calling it that, what I'm doing tonight, I suppose, it's without all the fury and sweat and pulpit pounding that I picture when I, when I hear that, but... If you want to say the preacher's making me think about death and that I might go to hell, I'm doing nothing more than Jesus did regularly in his preaching. It's one of the reasons, and though this may not be with all the flames and the anguish and all that, he's saying you could forfeit your soul. Are you right with me? Number two, if you're taking notes, let's summarize what I'm saying here in these two verses with this. You've got to beware of the persistent ripoffs. And let me put it in these terms. This isn't my phrase. My pastor used to put it this way. Satan has deep pockets. Whatever you want to avoid heaven, right? And that's not the way you think about it, but that's the way Jesus sees it. Whatever you want to avoid heaven, Satan will give you. Whatever it is. You want to be famous? He'll give you that. As long as you don't get right with the living God because he hates God. As long as you don't bring honor to God by being one who has his name inscribed in the Lamb's book of life, he'll give it to you. You want wealth? He'll give it to you. You want fulfillment? He'll give it to you. You want more pleasure? He'll give it to you. Satan will always give you what you want as long as you reject the Jesus of the Bible. I worded it this way, persistent ripoffs. Because while I speak to those that are considering what it means to become a Christian, I've got to tell you, every day in our Christian life, Satan is there with his deep pockets to offer us anything that we might want so that we don't follow him daily. That's where it ended, verse 24, follow me. Persistent, regular, every day, follow me. And those choices are made, as I said, when Christ becomes such the consuming priority of my life that it affects my daily decisions. And in those decisions, Satan will come, and he will offer you whatever it takes for you to get off the path. Whatever it takes. Demas, 
love the world. I don't know what it was in Paul's journey, but something there, according to the last chapter in 2 Timothy, something there was offered to him that made him say, I don't want this anymore. Judas, think about that, right? Need a few pieces of silver? You want to be rich? I'll give you that. And I say persistent because it's not just those that are considering their soul in terms of am I going to be all in or am I going to pass on this in some compromised version of Christianity. But think about Peter who looked Jesus in the eye when the rich young ruler walked away and he said, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. But then it's just a few chapters later, we see what Matthew 26, he's standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas. And now the question is, are you going to be so allied and associated with Christ that when it comes to being allied with him in the, in the, in the mind of a probably, I don't know, a 16-year-old servant girl in Caiaphas's courtyard, what are you going to do? And the ripoff was not being outed, being comfortable, fitting in, looking like one of the crowd, or standing with Christ. The persistent ripoff, which he grieved over, so much so that he, he wept when the rooster crowed. And later said, I can't be a pastor of the church like Jesus said I would. That rock that was going to have the church built, I, I can't do that. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to my old life. It's all about those decisions in the daily following of Christ. And the question for us is, are we going to fall to the persistent ripoff of, as it's put in this text, gaining the whole world? And that's kind of the extreme way to put it. But how about gaining a little more popularity at work? Gaining a few more friends on Facebook. I mean, we do a lot of things so that we don't get outed as a weird Bible-thumping Christian. And Christ is always saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And the temptation will be, don't follow him that much. Can you follow him a little bit less so that you can have this? A little more comfort, a little more convenience, a few more friends, a little bit more money, another client, a promotion. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is a man going to give in return for his soul? It's incalculable. You wouldn't do that at all. And in our daily following of Christ, don't make the same mistake some people make by walking away from Christ altogether. Now the day is coming. When I sat worshiping here with you, I thought to myself, this could all be over real soon. We've got to get to work reason I walked into this room with Bobby and said, you've got to have this, we've got to get this, we've got to nail this down, is because I know there are people that are lost that must get saved, because at one point, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of the Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He's done. That's Jesus' own words about the future of His arrival on earth. He came the first time as the Savior, He comes the next time as the judge, and you want to be right with the judge. But he, because he comes with his recompense, with his restitution, with his reward. And I know the time's running out. Jesus said he's going to come back like a thief in the night. And while everyone's saying peace and safety and the days will be like they were in the days of Noah, one day he will come and he says to us, be ready. The only way to be ready about an event that's going to be a surprise is to always be ready, which means there's urgency in the Christian life which means that we have to recognize how important this is to follow him now, to realize that every investment in cross-bearing and self-denial and following and obeying Christ is worth it. Why? Because of that phrase, he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
And in the immediate context, as I said, it's whether or not you're going to deny yourself today, whether or not you're going to take up your cross, whether or not you're going to follow Christ, or whether you're going to sit there because of the beckoning call of gaining a little bit more of the world, turn your back on that. Everybody who turns his back on Christ will one day regret that. You know that. Philippians 2, verse number 10 says that the name of Jesus, this is an eschatological view of the coming of Christ, the picture of the end. Everybody at the name of Christ will bow. Every knee will bow in heaven, those that have died and gone on to be with Christ in heaven, of those on earth those living at the time of his arrival, and those under the earth, a poetic way of speaking of those who are lost, even the people that are lost. Everybody who mocks Christ, everybody who denies Christ, everybody who walks away from Christ, every false teacher, every cult leader, every false prophet, everyone's going to bow, and every tongue will confess, verse 11 says, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you're on the right side of that, Right? We talk about gaining the whole world. Well, that's not the world we want to gain, this one. It's the world then and there. It's the kingdom. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And as Bobby will teach us tomorrow night, that's that transfigurational moment where Jesus sits there on that mountain and we have that great appearance and he can unpack that tomorrow. But for us, and I know we often look at verse 28 as that statement about Peter, James, and John, but if you just take that out of it for a second and just look at this text, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Well, here's the thing for the rest of us. Most of you standing there, he could have said, and I speak to you now, most of you sitting here tonight, you will taste death, and then you're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Either way, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the point of that is, and if I think of his coming in verse 27 with the angels, or if I think about the death that I'm going to die in verse 28, which is a certainly important thing for us to do, to consider our life, as the psalmist said on more than one occasion, and count our days, number our days, to have a heart of wisdom, because I know my life isn't going to last forever. I don't know how many times I've shared the gospel with people that say, I'm going to do that later in my life. James says, you don't know what your life's going to be like. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to, you know, to say, oh, you could die in an accident. You ought to do this. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm just saying, really, in reality, we don't know the future. And for me, it's either Christ's return, which could be before this sermon is over, or my own death, which could be at any time. I'm going to see the kingdom. I just want to inherit it. I'd like to be invited into it. I'd like to hear the words, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and not these words, depart from me, I never knew you. There's only two choices here. Now, the way Jesus ends this short little exhortation to his disciples ought to help put all that he said that's so hard to swallow in perspective. Self-denial, cross-bearing, following him on a regular basis, saying no to gaining the world or any incremental part of the world. Yeah, because one day the kingdom's coming. One day you'll die, and it'll be in the kingdom and the glories of the kingdom and all the good things your heart could ever desire, or you'll be cast out of it. And he'll repay you for not doing what he told you to do, not denying yourself, not taking up your cross and not following him. And when I think about what's at stake, 
gaining the kingdom versus gaining the world, I realize that all the costs are outweighed by the value of the transaction. If you are taking notes, that's number three. Let the value outweigh the cost. It's that simple. Let the value outweigh the cost. You've heard that old psychological test. I just had someone forward another you know, version of it to me where they would put the cupcake in front of the kid, say, you can have the cupcake, but if you wait and don't have the cupcake till the tester comes back in the room, you're going to have two cupcakes, right? And you realize that the temptation of staring the cupcake in the eye and saying, I want that because it's there and I can have it right now versus I can double this investment if I just wait patiently. Self-denial is saying no to a lot of things in this world that bring immediate gratification. All sin does. As it says in Hebrews 11, there is a passing pleasure of sin. I can't tell you a sinful you know, act is not something that will bring you some kind of immediate pleasure. It will. And maybe even giving up on being mocked and ridiculed as a Christ follower and becoming a popular you know, celebrity musician or whatever your dream might be. Hey, yeah, there may be in the short run something beneficial about that. But the kingdom's far better than doubling your cupcake, right? The reality of the kingdom a thousand years from now, a million years from now, you'll look back at the little blip of time in this life and the things you sacrificed and you'll say, why would anybody, why would anybody choose to cling to the world when they could have the kingdom? Let me be as silly as me saying at the opening of the service, I got a dollar right here, I'll give you this dollar, but if you wait till the end of the service... I'll give you $10,000. They're, they're in the fool in the room. We isn't going to wait 45, 50 minutes to get $10,000 and give up on the $1. But you know, when you train your kids from the time they're little, they just sometimes just don't have the discernment to recognize. Waiting a little while is far worth it. If certainly you can see that the promise and the outcome and the benefit and the gratification of waiting far outweighs the immediate gratification of compromise. Let the value outweigh the cost. Everybody who tries to gain the world has buyer's remorse. They do. It comes. Let me quote two of my favorite passages. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Christians should be the most patient, enduring, persevering people there are. Elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he says, this light and momentary affliction, particularly the kind that we get from cross-bearing and self-denial, it is preparing for us or producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And here comes the real instructive point. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. It's a mist. It's a vapor. But the things that are unseen are eternal. I was uh, shocked, as you might imagine, when someone on Facebook not too long ago posted a picture of the worst backpacking trip I'd ever been on and had a picture of me standing at the base of the mountain after an arduous seven-day backpacking trip. I was probably, I don't know, 15 years old in the picture. And it brought back all those memories of that trip. I'd, 
I don't know, referred to it a few times. I probably used it as a sermon illustration once or twice. But when I saw that picture, I kind of relived the whole just arduous pain of that whole thing. I thought about how stinky we were and how gross it was. And then at one point, which I didn't have the guts to even share with my parents in any great detail when I got home, we almost died as we were climbing up the side of this mountain somewhere in central California in the high Sierras, and we were so stuck in this crevice of a rock that, and I'd never repelled before, but the guy who was with me there, he said, I'm going to teach you how to repel. We were literally hanging in a crevice of a rock. The only way we could get down was to repel. I'd never been so scared in my life, and I successfully, that's why I'm here, uh, made it down the side of that mountain, and the only way we got down was by repelling it. I think we left the rope, you know, still dangling from that rock. It was a terrible experience. But I think about the times I had recalled that, and I was sitting there in the nice, cozy, warm, you know, office as I was looking at my computer screen and seeing the picture of that terrible day, and I looked gross, and, you know, I just imagined the whole thing, and I, the times I'd thought back to, the thing I remember the most was driving down from the, the camp, after we'd hiked and spent days in the high Sierras, to the McDonald's at the bottom of the hill. Food had never tasted so good. I remember packing our backpack, and I would pack, you know, spam, which you know, now sounds so gross. But, you know, we'd have the, the gorp, which I get, what do they call it, trail mix now, right? And all of that was eaten by Monday night. I mean, we were literally eating like nothing. And the guys that would go fish, I hated fish. I wouldn't even. So there was no better taste than at the end of that trip, eating a quarter pounder with cheese and a large French fry. It was awesome. <laughs> and when I look back on that trip, I thought, yeah, that was tough. That felt good. That was a challenge. Even a sense of pride almost as I looked at that picture going we survived and that was the mountain in the background and we did it we conquered we overcame I love the fact that the church age ends with the marriage supper of the lamb way better than a quarter pounder with cheese I'm sure I assume it won't be kosher so we can have a quarter pounder with cheese somebody got it And I think to myself, like sitting there, stinky, eating my quarter pounder with cheese, we'll be sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is basically the analogy of a wedding reception, when it's all said and done, looking back, saying, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, we had some scary times, but by God's grace, we overcame. Every sacrifice was worth it. And then from that point on, the marriage supper of the Lamb on, according to the book of Isaiah, I think the memories of earth will become just more and more dim and just less and less. He says, they'll, they'll hardly come to mind. But that feast will be great. And for those of us that followed this clear exhortation of Christ, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, take it for We're going to sit there in that new, cleaned up, you know, place with all of the blessings of God going, this was, it was so worth it. Every sacrifice was worth it. Don't be ripped off. Be grateful that God told us it would cost us everything. And let the value in your own mind outweigh the sacrifices, whether you still in some weird 
perverse way, look back at what you could have been as a non-Christian, or if it's just looking at the pain in your own heart of denying sin tomorrow afternoon, just say every sacrifice is worth it. Every sac- the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Let's pray. God, help us. Knowing in the modern era, it's no different than in the first century. There was a lot of things that people could buy and do and amass and a lot of things that people could look at in the present world of the first century and say, I want to chase those things and I'm not interested in following this itinerant rabbi around doing his work, talking about some coming kingdom and telling people to repent of their sins and meddling in their lives. And I just, I'd much rather just go about my business. Today, it's the same way. Many people sit there and look at what it means to follow Christ, and they think, you know what, I'd much rather sit at home at night than go work in Awana. I'd rather spend my Sunday mornings playing golf or reading the paper and not running off to church. I don't want to shove my religion down anybody's throat. I'd just much rather just live a quiet, contented life here in Southern California. And yet, God, you don't give us that option. I know many people take it, but they'll gain something of this present world, but they'll forfeit their souls. So I pray for those in this room right now. Maybe some who thought they were Christians for many years to do what many of us have had to do, whether it's Bree's story or my story or any number of people that have thought that they were right with you just to say, you know what, I've never really grappled with this whole thing. And I've got to be willing to let God be God. That whole transaction described in words like repentance and faith, give that in generous portion to this group of people. Let it be something passed on from one person to the next that one day we'll be talking about the early days of Compass Bible Church HB and we'll see that the message of the gospel that was preached in that opening week by Bobby and Pastor Mike was something that has multiplied hundreds of times over in the lives of people that have come to Christ in this church. So bless this church and let it begin by every person that hears my voice being sure they're right with you. Let us not be deceived by the deep pockets of the enemy. Let us be willing to follow you no matter what it costs. In Jesus' name, amen.